Hey everybody, Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and welcome to the Research Evangelist Podcast, where I interview people in life sciences that are brilliant but not famous. Well, some of them may be famous, but all of them are well-known in their field and respected by their peers, but they're not known by the average person on the street, like if I would ask my next-door neighbor. Today, I'm honored to have on my program my friend, Dr. John Wettstein. Uh, John is a self-described passionate cancer researcher and science advocate. He's a distinguished professor. He's program leader of the Cancer Epigenetics Program and the Jack Schultz Endowed Chair in Basic Science at Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia. John, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, John and I, we met on Twitter many years ago, and uh, we share a passion for research. And um, it's funny how I've met people um, on, on social media and then become friends with them after the fact when you get to a chance to meet them in person. So John and I were also recognized um, at the MGH 100 um, for the Mass General Cancer Center, and our families have gotten to know each other. So it's sure it's a super pleasure to have you on the show, John. And I remember you telling me, um, and I visited your lab many times, um, telling about some inspirations that you had when you were younger. And I think you told me about um, some teachers you had or something, or but kind of tell me about your journey into becoming, well, I'll say brilliant and maybe famous <laughs> um, cancer researcher. So uh, <laughs> it's too kind. <laughs> Uh, considering the people you interview and the people you meet and the people you know, I, I, I probably pale in comparison. Um, actually, my journey started because of an inspired teacher. Um, I was extremely fortunate that my family moved to just outside of Memphis, Tennessee. <clears throat> and um, I had a high school biology teacher who taught the genetics and showed a Punnett square and started talking about it. And I'll never forget that moment because it was like, it was an aha. It was the first light bulb. It was, it was like, this is the coolest thing I have ever seen in my life. And his name is Doyle, um, dedicated my PhD to him. He helped me open the door to my, when I first started my lab, he was a high school teacher that changed my life. And actually in my office here at Fox Chase, hanging right above almost my head, is the first science award I ever received in high school. And it's called the Species Award that he made out of stained glass. Um, and that, I keep it in my office because it reminds me why I got into science. We can lose sight of it because, you know, there's a lot of failure in science. You're trying to discover something that you may not find. You write grants, they get rejected. You write papers, they, they need more. There's all these things that challenge it. And I keep it in my office to remind me that, you know, when I was about 15 years old, it was that simple, oh my goodness, there's something to be found and I got to go try it that changed me. That's awesome. I, and I remember you, you know, telling me it's always stuck with me because I, I've, I've always been curious about, you know, the people side of research and, you know, and hearing, hearing their stories. And that one always caught me, you know, cause I, I could tell you your face lit up when you, when you first told me that story. And then, so you, you did your graduate work and, and, and postdoctoral work at Wayne state. And it, can you tell me something that stands out uh, from your time there? Yeah. So, um, before we go there, let me just say something that's really important, I think, for people listening is that my journey started in the middle, basically, of the cotton field. I was at an agricultural high school, and it gave me hope and realization to go after it. So then I went on to Western Kentucky University, where 
once again, I had an amazing set of mentors and they taught me how to ask scientific questions. They taught me not to give up. They stood with me to kind of, kind of keep me thinking. And, and this is where I saw chemistry and I saw how you control genes. And from there, they, it launched me into trying to understand how are genes controlled and how will that shape how a person responds to drugs or how is a person going to act differently when they experience say, a, a toxicological compound or something like this. And that's what then, that's what then kind of brought me to Wayne State where I got my PhD in pharmacology. And my experience there was really very good again, because once again, I had an amazing mentor whom I still interact with, who I still talk to, um, who challenged me to always be better um, than what I was. It doesn't mean I necessarily agreed with him all the time. It doesn't mean that, you know, I like the fact that the person's critical, but it shaped me. It helped shape me and it um, you always have high expectations for the ones you train and have high expectations for those that you interact with. And at the same time, you're allowed to discover, you know, as, as a PhD student, the one thing that happened is I had discovered that there are certain parts of DNA were kind of a, uh, to generate certain type of RNA, the transcript, and this is attached to this gene. And the gene we were studying is the major route by which a, a chemotherapy gets into cells. And at the time, though, we didn't have the full map of the DNA. That had not been published yet in science. It hadn't come out publicly. And I had this data, and I remember us discussing, well, maybe it's not a good experiment because the things we know, they're not attached to this, this RNA that you're looking at. They're, maybe it's junk. Maybe it's sitting there. And I remember what changed my life, and this is what I think is so important for people to realize, it was that publication and release of the full sequence of DNA. Because then it allowed me to say, is the stuff I'm looking at junk? Is, is it junk? And it changed my entire PhD thesis in the sense I then published a couple papers based on that information because we found out that there was this huge amount of real estate of DNA that inside there were the regulatory elements that generate that, quote, transcript that then gives rise to this key protein. And it was that that when I look back was important because it shaped my PhD. It shaped the work that the lab did after I left. But it also showed me something else, and this is very key. It, it just takes a moment in science to change many things. We've seen that for immunotherapy. We've seen that, I mean, that's recent right now. People, of course, are thinking about this because of the development of novel technologies or tools for COVID. It just takes a moment. It takes that, that split second that can be transitionary. And that was the first kind of realization of how that type of big data access made a difference. Wow. Another turning point in your, in your, in your life, in your career. Yeah. You know, so what, and I, I know when we met um, and I first, you know, heard you talking about epigenetics and, you know, you, you can laugh at me because, uh, you know, I would, I would always say, uh, you know, John, my friend, John always, you know, tells me uh, what epigenetics is, but I still don't understand it. And, and you, you, you try to, so, you know, when I, now, now I hear about it a lot. You know, because you've yep. made me aware of it, but um, my go—you're my go-to person when I when I when I think of epigenetics. So, you know, tell my tell the listeners like uh, you have video. First of all, you have a video 
uh, on the Fox chase yep. on the page, which I think is awesome because it, it puts it in things I could understand it. Even Dave Bjork can understand it, but maybe you could just, uh, tell yeah. us, tell us what epigenics is. Yeah. It's, um, we'll see if I even know it's one of those things that you try to explain to people so that they, um, they, cause when you say, when you hear a word like epigenetics, like I used to teach a high school class for a week every year when I was in Massachusetts and I would talk to the students, I'm saying, you'd hear these fancy words, but don't panic. Just sit and look at the word for a minute. So there's a key element there. It's genetic. Well, genetics, your DNA code, right? Every cell has it. We all have it. But what's amazing is that six feet of genetic code is in all your cells in your body, but yet skin knows its skin, liver knows its liver, the brain knows it's the brain cells, right? And it's how that DNA material is organized and compartmentalized. So basically taking six feet of this thin thread and you're wrapping it up and putting it inside the cell you can't see. And it's that environment around it, that epi, epi meaning around, that controls how that genetic material is accessed, how it's organized, how it's allowed to be uh, you know, rewritten again so that you can get a divided cell. It's, it's how that epi environment, that everything around the DNA is being involved. So it's changes or alterations that are not permanent to your genetic code. Um, so epigenetics influences that. So that is how that DNA material is used. It provides kind of input and it can allow something to go forward. Um, so think of a, your thermostat. You dial it up to get a little warmer, but then at the same time, you can dial it down so you're not too hot. Um, that's kind of what epigenetics does. It allows that reostatting of the DNA for the process that comes next, which is in many times how gene, you know, turning genes on or off or upregulating a gene or downregulating it. At the same time, it's also important in does your DNA get copied or not? At what rate do you copy it? Uh, how do you stabilize it? That whole environment, that environment around that DNA um, is critical for that. Right. And so I'd like to go a little bit deeper in that because um, I remember you talking about this regulation of the environment, but are there kind of bring us to, to date here on like, like research projects that you're, that you're either working on or you're most proud of, or like what you're excited about. Like, let's keep going with the conversation about, hey, about hey. your lab you're unlatching the lid on this whole thing now. Um, so, you know, talking about what I'm excited about in my lab is like, you know, uh, going to a big 10 football game. Um, so <laughs> there's many things I'm interested, excited about what we're doing that I think the coolest part is, um, so I was fortunate that when I was a fellow postdoctoral fellow in young shoes lab, I was involved in the discovery of a whole new class of epigenetic regulators. What does that mean? Well, they're gene, they're proteins, which have an enzyme function. So they, they do a role and they end up changing that environment or the chemistry around the DNA or affiliate with the DNA so that you can change genes. But in our case, it gave way to a discovery that happened in my own group. And that discovery was they also control how much DNA is generated for a region. So we all know that in cancer and many other diseases actually, that you get extra copies of distinct genes. And many of those, when we think of cancer, we think of an oncogene, a gene that would drive cancer, facilitate cancer. Um, and my lab was very fortunate that 
in discovering these enzymes, we pursued their, what do they do? And it led us, you know, by having a great group of folks that work with me in my lab, because it's not me, it's a team. Without, without the lab, you don't have output. You, it, it requires everybody. We discovered that this particular set of enzymes, these demethylases, and what their name says is they remove a methyl group. A methyl is a type of chem, it's a chemical mo mo a modification. It doesn't do a lot. It's kind of, you think of it almost like a period of an end of a sentence. It's just, it's important, but it's not too exciting. It's not like the exclamation point. So what happens is these enzymes could change that. When they, when they remove it, what we found is that they would facilitate the ability to amplify, create more DNA in a very distinct set of regions. And those regions are linked to drug resistance across tumor types. Um, we found most recently published this year in 2020, it actually regulates a very key factor known in lung cancer, EGFR. It allows it to be amplified. But what's really important about, I think, this discovery is often when you think of DNA change, extra or alterations, the first thing is it's random. And I think the most important thing that drives hope for people is when you realize that something's not random, it's biologically driven. There's a process because if it's a process and it's a biology, that means you can biomark it. You can look for that factor to be aberrant or different in cancer or disease. It also means you have a drug target. And so what we were able to do in our studies, the most recent one especially, um, was we're able to demonstrate that the EGFR gene, which is an oncogene, which gets amplified, we could actually control, we could turn it up, we could turn it down by using drugs that target the epigenetic factors, the demethylase that's important in facilitating it, but also the other enzymes, the methylase is the thing that put them there. We could reostat, we could control that balance. And when you control that balance, you control the amount of copies and you were, you can actually influence drug response. To me, that was one of the coolest things in my career because it took earlier discoveries on something that we had a gene, we had an enzyme, a new thing that was really important. There's been a lot of activity. There's, you know, industry has a big investment on targeting these types of targets now, um, big and small industry. But the ultimate quest is to understand what do they really do. And now that we found this novel function, the, the coolest part is it's not just the demethylase anymore. It means now we can uncover more and more factors that control how much DNA is generated from distinct regions that drive cancer or promote resistance. But now, instead of not knowing how, we start to see how it happens which means now we can start to think about drugging those targets. Well, I think that's awesome. That's, that's just so cool because I, you know, I, I write about and I talk a lot about precision medicine and lung cancer and, and specifically lung cancer. Cause I, that's uh, because I'm a survivor, but the fact that there are, you know, seven biomarkers in non-small cell lung cancer now that have drug that have target that's targeted therapy. Yep. I think it's amazing, but I think it's important for our listeners to understand that, yeah, we have great stuff happening in industry, but that doesn't happen without people like you. I know who make these discoveries. Well, I think, I think that's, you know, I think a message that is so important is we are in it together. Right. And what I mean by that is the discovery 
isn't going to necessarily be able to, the person who makes that discovery of a gene or a process doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be able to develop a molecule that will end up helping humankind. You need the partnership. You need the relationship between the scientists, the clinicians, the industry partners, and what you really need to is philanthropic help. And if you really think about it, you right now in the media, it's really popular, right? Dolly Parton gave a million dollars, which ultimately helped facilitate a vaccine for COVID. Philanthropic help matters. If you start to think about it, it's, it's we're all in it. It also means people like yourself, Dave, the reason that this is so important, the reason that I feel it's so important is you're bringing a voice for scientists, clinicians, people who want to kind of change the landscape of our knowledge to everybody so people can hear about it and then someone at home can hear it and realize, oh, I identify with that. Oh, this is a real person. And you know what? I can make a difference too. How? Well, whether you give a dollar or whether you give a million dollars, whether you advocate by publicly supporting research by you know how you vote or who you talk to, or better said, that kid in high school who realizes, oh, that kid didn't come from an elite family. He came from a little town outside of Memphis in an agricultural school. And look, he was able to go make discovery that can be pursued at an academic and industry level, and it can leave a, it leave a landmark, can leave a chapter in a textbook. That message goes at all levels. So we're all in it together, no matter how and what part. We kind of stole one of my lines because I use that phrase <laughs> a lot. And, I, and every, you know, I, I've, you know, I've started things like the biotech games and other fun projects that I've been involved with, but I often use the word, you know, we're all in this together, you know, yep. and I do believe in that partnership between, between basic science, academic labs, industry, venture capital, patients, um, Every, you know, there's a whole, this whole ecosystem, you're right on. I mean, that's exactly why I started the podcast was because, you know, I'm shining a light on people in life sciences that are doing great work. Yeah. You know? So, and th this actually brings me, you know, you open, talk about, you open up a, you know, get me started. Um, I rant a lot about um, how researchers like you, and it wasn't just you, John, you, you were probably the 20th person that I had come across um, that said, you know, you spend up to 75% of your time fundraising, writing grants, um, and that's really something that I'd like to change. I say, I'd like to change that paradigm. I'm just one guy, but, but to your point, um, tell me about that experience from your perspective and, and, you know, can, uh, you know, what can, what, what needs to change, you know, to get so that you're not spending 75% of your time, you know, writing yeah. and again, it's not just you, this is across, no, across the board. It, it's, it's across the board. Um, and of course, I have to preface this with my opinion, of course, in the <laughs> sense that, you know, and I have, I have always a lot of opinions, but we do spend, scientists spend, and clinical translational scientists spend, um, anybody in the scientific realm spend a lot of time trying to raise resource, typically most of the time governmental. However, now there's more and more foundations that are really helping in big ways. And there's so many people, so many ideas to fund and not the resource, not enough resource to cover it all. So if you think about it, 
certain funding agencies, when you apply, you might, you know, they may only be able to fund between seven and say 15% of the grants, right? That's, that's a lot of science that people put, because you, you spend several months or a couple months focused on trying to prepare a grant so you can fund your lab to do the science. And usually most of the grants cannot support all the science that you're doing in a lab. So you've got to keep writing for them, right? So your, your ability to recruit and keep your team strong, your ability to buy, whether it be a $5 item or $5,000 item, you have to bring those dollars in. So you are constantly writing and constantly looking to bring those resources in. And then, of course, you have a lot of investigators, a lot of novel science, a lot of amazing things. So it's just not the resource. So what I'd say is it's just it's a it's a hard system, right? Because I don't want to complain because I've been very fortunate that I've received my funding and the NIH has been very supportive of our work. But at the same time, there's many ideas that we've applied for. We we don't we're not at the funding number or it doesn't happen. It happens to all of us. Um and you spend all that time and energy into it. And what I want to say is it's, it's the way that system is. But if someone says, John, what do you do about it? Well, what I'd say is this, this is where educating the public matters. This is where telling your neighbors matter. Because if you vote and you support research, there will be more dollars that'll go in, which will help and support more investigators. But there's the other side people themselves can make a difference. And, you know, my mother always says to me, well, I, I went and I donated $20 to your, to your lab or to the thing you're doing, or I've given $50 to this, this research effort. John, does it really matter? And the answer is yes. And the reason I explain why I say that is that in a lab, we have stuff that, you know, we have plates or we have tubes that we use and we use lots of them right? They may cost 10 cents, but we use a lot. So $5 will cover a lot. We have um, more expensive things. Like if we want to do a sequencing reaction and it costs say, a couple thousand dollars, any dollars that go to that allow us to do those experiments. And so that's where the philanthropic side matters, right? So you may not be able to change a complete granting format system, but what you can do is educate the public. So one, they'll vote for more or they'll support more money to research, but also then people can also go out there and identify scientists they want to support. For example, you're, you're shining light on people that people don't know. And if they identify with the cause, the background, whatever it is, the location, the institution they're part of, they physically can contribute directly to the success of a research program. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't realize that they can have a direct hand in shaping science or discovery by actually partnering with a scientist or partnering with a group or a program to help facilitate it to happen. And so when you, when you say like, what could change? I think what, what seems more realistic is to do what foundations have done. Many foundations or associations have tried to step in and bring some dollars, an extra resource, right? For scientists to do but there's still a big gap. There's still not enough. So if you want the money to go, if you really want to identify something, look, if you're a person in the, say the Midwest and you're near a university you like, and you're, you have a topic that interests you or a disease of interest, ask to see a portfolio about the scientist, right? 
or email this guy, Dave, and say, hey, I found out about this. Can you direct me? I think that's going to shape it. And that also means that instead of a scientist or person sitting at a computer writing about what they've already done and focusing on trying to justify what they already know they should be doing or is in process, you're actually helping them do it versus talk continually stressed to try to hack it. You'll, you're going to facilitate success. Right. And that's, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record about this because I, every time I talk to a researcher, I, I bring up this topic because, you know, you mentioned the foundations. Well, I just talked to a foundation that, you know, had like over a hundred requests for funding Yes, and they could only fund about seven of them. Yep. So that you're in that seven to 15%, even with as much oh, as yeah. they would love to give more, they, they just don't have the resources. And so this, this message, John, of, of being able to donate directly, put money directly into research. And we've, you and I've had this experience because yep. I've supported your lab in the past and I've brought yep. together people, um, for that purpose. And, and I'd like to do that again. Um, but I think I'll just emphasize the point to the listeners that people can donate directly to research labs. They can, so, they should. Yep. Like they, I was, you know, I was, I, I was, I'm a, I'm a grateful patient, but if I give my, if I make a donation to a large institution or even a, even a super large, um, mm-hmm. foundation, I, how much of that money is going to actually go to a guy like, you know, John Wettstein. So, right. So, it's the educational people because people don't realize that. I never realized that until about seven years ago. Well, what I, what I will say is I think there's, I, like I said, you, it's an ecosystem. You have your NIH, which is essential. It's got a great review mechanism. The NCI, those things are in place. There's a lot of great things happening. So you can't, it can't cover everything. You have societies or foundations or associations come together to try to fill a gap in the need. And they're essential because they're adding actually additional resource. But then what I feel is people become very skeptical about, and this is more for the science because I deal with this, does science really matter? Is it really doing anything? Um, What I try to explain to people is when you start to be skeptical because of where you're giving or fear that you're not going to make an impact with it, what I say is empower yourself to go directly to find, like if there's a scientific thing you're interested in, and maybe you don't even know, maybe you sit home and you're like, I don't know anything about science, but I would love to impact lung cancer. Then what I would say to you is go to a place nearby and say, you know, I'm interested in supporting lung cancer research, or I'm interested in supporting breast, ovarian, neuroblastoma. And what I'd like to do is I want to see my, what I give into this directly impact the lab or the science, most, most places are going to be thrilled to have that, that interaction. You know, I mean, there, you're going to be able to find those. So what I would say is it's that group of people who are worried it won't make an impact instead of worrying about it and not doing it, go find a place, go to a place, build a relationship and help directly. Because you can, and scientists will be thrilled, and you, you'll be able to give visits to labs and meet the people. You also have to remember, science is not one generation. It's many generations. It's the, one of the last apprenticeships on planet Earth. 
You know, you go as a PH, you go as this undergrad and you learn or a high school student and you learn, then you go on and you go to, to college and you learn the classes and you hopefully do some science. And then you go on to grad school, grad school, you work in labs, you take the classes, you're still in labs working for a senior investigator. You're trying to learn it. You're working with other people who are the next level, which is postdoc after you get a PhD, then you start, then you go do a postdoc. So now you're learning how to hopefully get enough data and enough science development that you can set up your own lab. I mean, it's, and then what do you do then? You train, you train more people if you go the academic route. And then what do they do? They do like the people that like the two in particular from my lab that went on to academic labs. I've had others that have gone on to industry and biotech and are senior scientists in that compartment, in that place. So what I'm pointing out is when you support science, you support a research effort. You're not just supporting it today because it is a generational impact. And I've seen that firsthand. I've seen it in, in my work over the last four years in Fragile X um, research. I've seen and met uh, people like you at studying Fragile X who, you know, who have sent, had support, have supported uh, young postdocs who then have gone off to, you know, they go from Stanford yep. and and then they set up a lab at MIT or vice versa. Yep. And, and that expands the number of people and minds, I say minds, brilliant yep. minds, who are working on a specific. Uh, well, so Dave, the same thing. So if you think I can give a life example. So when I was a postdoc, we discovered these enzymes. Now from the lab I trained in, Yang's lab, there's a dozen of us studying these types of enzymes that we at the time weren't. At the same time, labs that were say competing on the same topic to make this and made similar discoveries. Now they've seeded scientists. So there's a whole collection of people that now work in that with the discovery of this amplification, making more DNA, our lab found that, but now I have two former trainees that it's part of what they do. One of them, it's, it's, it's an entire focus and he's funded through the NIH to study this. Um, so it is one of those things that it's, 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 it's like the dandelion. Initially the dandelion's a flower and it looks like it's by itself, but it's the worst plant on the planet because as soon as it matures <laughs> and it gets that little fuzzy top, it blows. And next thing you know, you have 5,000 dandelions. That's science. If you wanted to know the truth, it's a blooming flower that spreads everywhere if allowed to. Well, that you've, you've, you really brought up this amazing point about the last apprenticeship because Again, if 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 our listeners can think about, you know, someone comes and trains under you, and then they go, it's like, and they tell two friends, and then they tell two friends. Remember those old commercial on TV yeah, about yeah. the multiplication <laughs> effect? And before you know, you have, you know, you have a thousand people out there, and so you know, I think that's where people really can, you know, can make a difference. And I want to bring another point about about how I know science, the the interaction between scientists and and patients slash donors slash philanthropy, yep. and I think that that that's a human connection that goes both ways. I think yep. I, I've seen it firsthand where someone wants to come see, I've, I've brought people to your lab. Yep. You, you remember even oh, a yeah. couple of times. I, I love to give tours. To, I, you I know, know you do. I, I feel like it's, um, it, I love to educate people. I, I love 100%. to, I, I would, you know, if there's one thing I have is a big bottle of enthusiasm and <laughs> I like to share it if I can. And I, um, I think it's one of the best things you can actually do for somebody who's not aware or skeptical is you bring them in and you show them what it really looks like, right? Because that, 
it makes it real, right? Because often you, you see it in science fiction on television. You don't understand what's going on in a lab. Like if you ask the average kid, especially when I teach high school, the first thing I say to the kids is, you know, what do you visualize in your head when you think of a scientist? It's never flattering, by the way. You know, it's not like, you know, sports cars and, you know, uh, you know, the, the mansion on the, none of that. It's, it's this crazy person with their hair everywhere and, you know, gook coming out of their, you know, just dribbling out of their jacket or, you know, the 10,000 pens or somebody. It's never flattering. But by the time I'm done, after that week of work with the students and what I, if you ask them, what is a scientist? They begin to realize that it's them. It can be them. It can yeah. be anybody. It, it is not, are you the smartest? I would venture to say for science, it's the person who works the hardest and tries the hardest and thinks. That's, that's science because you're, you're able to kind of ask things, right? And it doesn't have, the goal is for it not to be known. I mean, how many, I mean, that's why I tell the students or I tell trainees, I mean, the, we, can, we can be upset about how hard it is to get funding to do your research. But what a blessing to be able to work on something and you could shape tomorrow by the questions you're asking, the experiments you're doing. Um, of course, if you had more resources, you can do more. I mean, don't get me wrong. You can spread enthusiasm all over the world that way, right? But the truth is, what, what a really cool career. It's artistic liberty, but with another layer of impact on to you know, humankind from potentially medicine to technology to the whole range. I, um, that's what makes it really fun. That's yeah. And I'll, so I'd like to now, um, we've talked about, um, we're all in this together and yep. teamwork and oh, yeah. I see the teamwork in your lab. You see yep. teamwork with working with some foundations that, yep. uh, support and just industry that well, you work together yep. and collaborate. Let's talk about Fox chase cancer center. Yeah. And I know you've moved down to Philadelphia and you know, I went to Penn, so yeah. I spent some time down in Philly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you've told me, you know, now, some now of our conversations. Was that? Now, you're, now you're about to get a lot of passion, right? Cause <laughs> yeah. I, um, you know, I, I, my lab moved here last July and I had started on ahead of time and was learning the new role. Cause I lead this program and, um, building this kind of epigenetic cancer epigenetics, um, program here and we're hiring faculty, but what brought me to Fox chase is this true team environment. It is not words. It is heart. The clinicians work tightly with us. It has since the inception of this institution. Um, it is a culture that to be honest with you, um, the day I, you know, I mentioned this award I got in high school, um, that award and what I thought science and, and research and medicine was, um, I live now here. Um, it's an environment that is built that way. Um, it has been an amazing, an amazing experience because there's true there. My colleagues are fully embracing cancer, the epigenetics, this concept, this very basic concept. And, you know, like Dave, what you said before, what is it? You know, some people feel that way. It was nebulous. It's epi around the DNA. What, <laughs> what is that really? Could you draw me a picture? Um, the point is that my colleagues clinically, 
my colleagues that study other fundamental questions about say how signals are being misregulated in cancer or how mutations are existing both in your germ cells, like your normal cells, as well as in your cancer cells, it doesn't matter the facet. Everybody here is like conceptually excited about this as an important area. Leadership is excited about it. Um, the patients that I've met even, you know, before the whole COVID thing, the, the, the advocacy groups on the outside, the foundations, the people that have supported us, this, it's truly a, it's an environment where it is that team. And the special thing about Fox Chase goes back to the fact that it's a very humble place in the middle of this, the woods. It sits in the middle of this park and it's not, you know, all these fancy lights and all this. It's just, it's about the mission, the person. And the scientists, you're, the building circular almost, it's not a circle, circle, but it looks, it's basically circle. If I keep walking, I'm going to go the same, I'll be in the same spot. But like, you see the patients, you don't forget why you're here. The, your, your trainees don't forget why they're here. The institution is committed to the public and, and it's committed to it. And so it's allowed us to start converting some of these, what I consider basic findings into translation, meaning we can now look into tissue samples. We can start thinking about how would you treat a patient that presented with that genetic or that epigenetic effect? Where would an epigenetic factor, something that regulates epigenetics, be best drugged or targeted in the context of the disease? And my clinical colleagues train or teach me as much or more than I teach them. And they also here really cultivate the, the junior clinicians to really do research. A lot of our clinical trainees are funded um, and they're engaging labs, um, which makes it where you're now, it's true bench to bedside. And then there's this other cool thing. The Philadelphia chromosome was discovered here and right around the corner from my lab, it sits in a, the, the original microscope sits in a little plexiglass case, just right where people can walk right past it. No big bright lights on it. But then what's even more amazing is look at it, turn you around and look at the wall. And then there's two Nobel prizes on the wall, one on the wall, one of about one about the ceremony. And it's in a little plexiglass case sitting on the wall where anybody can see it. You can touch the plexiglass case. It's kind of crazy to see one sitting right there. And it's a place of fundamental discovery, but we have, we impact patients and all of it's kind of together. Um, a lot of people think of big medical centers when they, they think, oh, that makes sense. It's all there. But here it's kind of like that. It's, a, it's this wonderful vessel that is able to pivot very quickly and navigate. And it's very team oriented. And for the type of science we're doing in the interest in taking basic discovery to, to the patient, it's just been a remarkable experience. That's, that's, that's so great to hear. And I, I, I'm glad you're able to share it with the passion that I, that I heard from you when we when we've <laughs> talked about this, I think it's, it's fantastic. So, and by the way, um, I, I, I work with a group of, um, lung cancer advocates, um, many of them who are still in, in treatment. And, you know, I just recently met one, um, who's, uh, in the, in the Philadelphia area yep. who is getting treatment at Fox Chase cancer center. 
um, and has told me about her experience. So we may have to have a follow-up. Um, oh yeah, no. Conversation it, and, and I think I'll we tell should. You, we'll tell you, and maybe we'll even get her on the show. Well, I'll um, tell you. I'll tell you a quick story along that line. Is I when I first moved here, I um, I had a I was getting a, my tire was going flat, and I had to go to a big meeting downtown. So I went to a dealership not too far from Fox Chase, and I drove in. And I said I, I walked in. And I said to the gentleman, I, "I'm getting a flat tower. I have a meeting downtown, and I, I'm, I work at Fox Chase." And and he looked at me, and says, "Well, sir, wait a minute." I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Fox Chase." I said, "Yes." He goes, and everybody's. They said, "Fox Chase. We love Fox Chase. This is such a this place takes care of its its its, its patients. It's it's a you know it's." And so they, they took care of my car right then, you know, it's, it's just that community vibe. Um, and it's, it's just got that feel. So yeah, it's, 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 it's been a great experience. Well, when we get past this, uh, this COVID time at some point, you know, I can't wait to come down to oh, see you. And I can't and wait to show you, you know, me, I'll, I will walk through the I whole be, new lab, you know, the whole new space, the I'm microscopes. Like a, I'm a kid in a candy store when I go visit your lab. So the DNA sequencing, you, you get to see the whole thing, <laughs> show it all well, to you. Yeah, totally. Well, John, thank you so much um, for being on the Research Evangelist podcast. It's been a real pleasure, and I've been looking forward to this for a long time. So, And I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in, um, and we look forward to uh, having you join us uh, on, on future episodes. So, John, thanks again uh, for sharing some really cool stuff with us today. Well, thank you for having me, and you know, Dave, truly, thank you for doing this. Awesome. Thanks.